What I think we need to do is hopefully in a few months, we need to come back and revisit those questions and say, what is it about our legal systems? What is it about our markets? What is it about our culture that creates these sorts of problems? And and how do we fix them so that we don't have to sort of scramble in a moment of crisis, but we actually have a system that takes people's health and safety and freedom and autonomy into consideration at the ground level? Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. For March's episode of the Restart Project podcast, we're taking a deep dive into the complex and often overlooked world of intellectual property laws. I interview Aaron Perzanowski, an academic from Case Western University in the US, who has written about the ways that our ever-shifting relationship with technology interacts with the legal structures that surround us and the way that it allows corporations to gain control. This topic feels super dramatic in the midst of a pandemic that threatens to overwhelm our medical systems, forcing biomedical technicians to potentially even violate the law to repair life-saving equipment. And we touch on that. But looking beyond the moment we're living in now, we also wanted to know what needs to change for greater fairness. In a world where physical ownership has become eclipsed by this new form of ownership that is controlled via the digital world. I'm Aaron Perzanowski. I'm a professor of law at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio in, in the United States. And I primarily spend my time researching and writing about intellectual property law and, and kind of in particular the way intellectual property law intersects with questions about sort of consumer ownership and control of their devices. And so why did you become interested in copyright and trademark law? I'm a person who decided to study law not because because I had an interest necessarily in, in being a lawyer, but really because it seemed like the place where they were having the conversations that I wanted to be part of. There was a lot of discussion around the time that I started studying law about the impact of copyright law on free expression, on creativity, and, and the ways in which it restricted people from being able to communicate in, in the way that they might otherwise want to. You know, I'd studied philosophy before that, and I, I found these sorts of questions just like really compelling. I think I, you know, in the end made the right choice, and, and this has been a, a pretty productive path for me. Copyright and trademark law are the kind of areas that you've focused on, right? Yeah, that's right. So I spent some time in practice as a lawyer in Silicon Valley, working primarily for software companies and technology companies as clients, and then decided that I could probably find a little bit more satisfaction in doing my own research and focusing on the things that I thought were the most interesting and most important sets of questions, which, you know, sometimes overlap with what clients want. And then another times I found myself sort of frustrated that I couldn't make the sorts of legal arguments that I thought were really kind of going to push the law in the right direction. Right. And you're a professor. Has the content that you're teaching changed over the last few years in regards to copyright law and electronics? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I really 
enjoy about this area of study is that it is constantly changing. I never teach the same course the same way two years in a row because there's always some sort of new development. I teach a course on sort of standard property law to our first year students. And that's really given me a great opportunity to, to talk about issues around repair, issues around the shifting relationships we have with our electronics devices. You know, we, we talk about what are the legal rules around, you know, repossession of a vehicle if you don't pay off your car loan. And it's just such a natural segue into the role that software code and, and technology plays in, in really dictating how we interact with those things that, that we purchase and that we think we are entitled to, to control. This has been a big research focus for me for a long time now, going on a decade. It started as an interest in the restrictions that consumers were facing when it came initially, at least to electronic media, things like ebooks and digital movie and, and digital music downloads and, and the restrictions that companies like Apple and Amazon were imposing, you know, whether or not you got to lend those purchases or resell those purchases, or even if you got to keep them in the first place. And that kind of naturally bled into some thinking on the role that law plays in shaping our relationships with the devices themselves. So the same kinds of restrictions on consumer behavior, the same sort of limitations on our freedom and our autonomy play out in the physical space as well. As soon as you introduce software code into any device, it, it gives the manufacturer and in some cases the retailer a lot of power to dictate how you interact with that product, how you can use it, the sort of length and shape of, of that relationship. Right. And and the work that you did around that stuff, as well as like other facets of your work, led to you writing the book, The End of Ownership in 2016. Yeah. So my longtime co-author, Jason Schultz, who, who teaches at NYU, we'd been writing a series of academic articles focused on issues around the kind of shifting nature of the marketplace for consumer goods, the shift from an economy that was really premised on the exchange of, of physical objects to an economy that in large part really depends on providing access to information, right? So in the media space, that's the shift from you know, buying physical records and physical books to buying ebooks to having subscription streaming platforms like Netflix and Spotify. And we thought that trend was really important because it has some like major implications for individual people in their day to day lives. So we'd written you know, a series of four or five academic articles that were raising important issues, but weren't necessarily accessible to the people that we thought really needed to hear and understand these stories and the overall trend. And so the book was really an effort to kind of repackage a lot of these ideas we've been working on and present them in a way that, you know, you don't need to have a graduate education in intellectual property law to understand this story. The book touches on the ways that this trend has crept back into the physical world through the internet of things and smart devices and, and embedded software and, and network connectivity, you know, in our refrigerators and our cars and all, all sorts of devices, sometimes even our bodies, right, through medical implants and, and other sorts of devices. In some ways, we think that the overall lessons are true, but 
anytime you're writing about technology, you know, the book, frankly, was out of date the day it was published. But that's inevitable with these sorts of things. has changed since then, since the book was published. We were still writing the book in an era where most music was being distributed through downloads. You know, the Apple iTunes music store was still like the number one source for music at the time. And now, of course, the market for MP3 downloads has taken a hit in a shift towards a more streaming-based model. So that, I think that's a big part of the story. And then the other thing that I think has become increasingly clear is the role of the law and intellectual property law in particular in shaping our interactions with physical devices. That's a trend that we identified in the book, but I don't think we were totally anticipating the speed with which we would see those relationships change as well. The tethered economy is sort of a term that we've used, uh, and and most recently I've kind of written about this with a a, a separate group of co-authors, Chris Hufnagel at University of California, Berkeley, and and Anikit Kasari, building on some of the ideas that Jason and I talked about in the end of ownership. So the idea of the, the tethered economy is really trying to give a name to this trend where we've seen a shift from companies selling you standalone products that were completely within your control after you make a purchase to what are increasingly these sort of blended products and services. So, you know, 10 years ago, you went out and you bought a new refrigerator for your kitchen. That was a purely physical device that was in your home that you had complete control over and didn't rely on any sort of ongoing service from the seller. Today, you go out and you buy a smart refrigerator and it's got all sorts of extra bells and whistles. It's got all these wonderful features. It can use the camera to tell you whether you're you know, running low on orange juice and maybe it'll connect to Amazon and order more for you. And you know, maybe there's some value in that. There's some convenience that comes from that. But those features all rely on not just embedded software code, but a network connection to some server that the seller is in control of. And you don't get to decide whether those features work moving forward. So we've seen examples most recently here, uh, a big retailer in, in the United States, Best Buy, has its own line of smart appliances. And it decided it was no longer financially feasible to support the smart features. So it just said, we're shutting them all off. You bought a smart refrigerator and it's not going to be one anymore. And, you know, They made some noise about issuing partial refunds and uh, inevitably there will be some class action lawsuit that consumers will bring over the, the loss of those features. But that's what we mean by the tethered economy, right? The things that you think are yours are in fact really dependent on some external source of services. And that that really puts consumers in a kind of precarious position. Right. And do you think that's a new concept or do you think it's uh, an old concept that's becoming more commonplace again? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, companies have always wanted to exert some control over consumer behavior and they've had tools to do that in the past, but they weren't as reliable. They weren't as pervasive. They couldn't take advantage of the kind of surveillance infrastructure, right? Companies can now monitor consumer behavior, use 
using the sensors and the cameras and the software that's built into these devices. And it, it just gives them so much more control and so much more information that, yeah, I mean, in some ways it is it is sort of the, the perfection, for, for lack of a, a better term, of, of a strategy that I think has been around for decades. And how can manufacturers make it easier for the average consumer to be more informed and understand what they're signing up for and what their rights are in regards to the ownership of these tethered devices? That's a really important question. I mean, part of the problem here, I think, is a sort of misalignment of incentives. Companies want to sell products and they want those products to be attractive to consumers. And so as a result, they have a pretty strong incentive to play up the positive attributes and 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 play down all of the things that consumers might be concerned about. One of the other companies that, that we talk about is uh, Sonos, right? So Sonos makes uh, incredibly popular smart speaker products. And a couple of years ago, they decided that they needed to push out a new privacy policy for all of their users. I'm sure I'm sure lots of people are already familiar with this story. The basic message that they gave to consumers was, look, either you agree to this new privacy policy that allows us to record essentially every sound in your living space so that we can integrate digital assistants like Alexa or Siri or what have you, or we're just going to stop pushing software updates to your speakers. And maybe they work today, and maybe they don't work in six months from now, and they certainly are unlikely to work in two years from now. That, I think, is the, the reality that consumers need to have access to. But I don't think we can rely on companies to willingly share that information. So, you know, if you try to read the terms, the end user license agreements, the terms of service that accompany these devices and the related services, they are absolutely written in a way that one, discourages any consumer from reading them because they're incredibly long, and two, are meant to ensure that if you do read them, you don't understand them, right? They use incredibly complicated legalistic language that I think is really tough to expect the average person to sit down and, and understand. So I think if we want to give consumers better information, we need some legal intervention, some law, some regulation that really forces the disclosure of, of that information. You know, until companies have a strong reason for doing it, I think it's unlikely that they'll that they'll go along with it. A proposed law that's happening in the UK would require manufacturers to declare at the point of sale how long they will provide software and security updates to a connected or tethered product. Do you think that this approach could work? And if it could, could it expand internationally? So I think this is a really good starting point, providing that kind of information, giving consumers some meaningful assurance of the sort of expected lifespan of a product is, I, I think, a, a useful starting point. I think there are a couple of questions that you have to answer once we start to go down that road. One is, what are the consequences or what are the penalties of a company that makes a representation and they don't follow through with it? And if it's a company, you know, like Apple or a company like Amazon that we know is, or that we expect, I shouldn't say no, that we expect is going to be around in the long term, maybe there's a penalty provision that's going to be effective to get them to comply. The bigger concern, though, 
or a related concern is that in a lot of instances when these products go unsupported, it's because the firm that put out the product has gone out of business, right? They're bankrupt. And it's pretty difficult to get a company that is shuttering its doors and firing its employees to continue to support devices. And so I think we need to think about mechanisms to enable third parties in some instances to continue to provide support. Maybe that's something like putting software code in escrow. Maybe that is an obligation to make things open source if you're not able to continue to provide the service that you have offered your customers. So I, again, I think it's I think it's a really important and valuable move to require that kind of disclosure. But I don't know that it gets us all the way there. In addition to mandating this kind of disclosure it would also be important to set a minimum sort of lifespan for products where we say, look, it's not enough that you just disclose we will support this product for three years or four years, but maybe we shouldn't let people sell products if they're not willing to commit to support them for a set period of time. So California has a, a state law that requires companies to make sure that replacement parts are available for any electronics device that sells, I think for over $100, uh, something along those lines. And one thing that we've proposed is that we ought to expand those obligations to include not only physical parts, but software components as well. to bring it to a very kind of topical way of thinking about these issues that we're just talking about this next question is prompted by the global COVID-19 emergency the pandemic that we're all in what happens when there's an emergency and manufacturers are no longer supporting or are unable to timely support software or hardware maintenance for vital equipment a moment of crisis like this reveals big structural problems that we should have been paying attention to all along. I'm talking to you from the United States, and this is a place where we still don't guarantee universal health care. Sure, there is a very discreet crisis happening right now, but it points to these bigger structural issues. Yeah, when I think about these these questions about repair in the context of, of medical devices uh, and other sorts of crucial infrastructure, a few things come to mind, right? When we are willing to live in a world where we limit repair to authorized providers, we're creating these potential bottlenecks. And we might not notice them all the time because maybe there's sufficient capacity to handle that workload if everything is working smoothly. But when we're faced with a crisis, we realize that manufacturers and their authorized repair partners are often not equipped to handle the volume of work that, that they're going to be presented with. I mean, going to the Apple store for repair is like bad enough when they're open, but when all the stores are closed, that leaves you with few options, right? And that's for something that is not that communications equipment isn't essential in times like these, but it's not the same as a hospital respirator. So I think that's part of it. Another part of it is, you know, as a society, I think our our skills and our muscles around repair have atrophied 
collectively. There aren't enough of us who are engaging in repair on a regular basis that have the sets of skills that are necessary to do our own small incremental part in a moment of crisis. I think building a culture where people actually understand how the equipment that they use and the the equipment that they rely on, that's really essential information that we are discouraging an entire generation from really understanding and engaging with. And I find it really reassuring that there are individuals and there are groups around the world that are trying to impart that information and build those skill sets. And that's important work, but we we need to do more of it. The other piece of this is a question of the availability of, of parts. And, you know, we've seen just in the past week stories of people who are 3D printing replacement parts for medical equipment because the authorized part suppliers aren't able to make those parts available. And it's great that we have the technology to do that, but it is crucial that we don't allow the law to interfere with people's ability to, to, to step in in a time of, of crisis in particular. So we don't want design patents. We don't want utility patents. We don't want other forms of intellectual property to stand in the way of people making these components that are that are really vital and, and necessary. You know, I think there are real worries here, and, and some of them go beyond repairs. There's a, a company in the United States called the Labrador Diagnostics, which is essentially a, a patent troll owned by SoftBank. And they're a company, they don't make any products, they don't sell any products, They hold patents and they sue people for patent infringement. And they held some Theranos patents around medical diagnostics. And they filed a lawsuit this week against a company called BioFire, which had recently developed three new COVID-19 diagnostic tests. And so they sue them for patent infringement and they're asking the court for an injunction to stop them from making these tests. This is a company that does not make any tests, that does not sell any tests, but they're trying to use the law to stop someone else from providing what is just the most incredibly crucial piece of technology that, that we can imagine right now. That's not the sort of thing that we ought to stand for. And again, I think it reveals some real deep structural problems in the way that, that the legal system operates, that we allow these companies to hold up valuable innovation and the provision of real necessary technology to, to individuals. Yeah, I mean, as you say, in so many areas of life, I think this crisis is making really clear what the problems are. In the UK, there's a lot to do with the way that our welfare state has been eroded over the years. There, there aren't safety nets, a little bit like America, but in theory, we've got an NHS. In theory, we've got the things that you unfortunately haven't in in America but that's only in theory in practice austerity over a number of years has caused a lot of issues that are really vital in non-panic times that this kind of crisis is bringing to light but would you say in these special circumstances we should be looking at copyright exemptions to extend the life of the vital devices we need so you know I have to sort of separate my tendency to think and give advice like a lawyer and my tendency to think and give advice like a human being not not that those two things are are mutually exclusive but you know the lawyer in me says well look we should you know we should 
do things by the rules, that we should be very careful and make sure we have a strong legal argument that we can engage in this behavior. And the human in me says, look, you just need to do what you need to do and sort out the consequences later. If it comes down to a hospital's decision to violate a copyright or a patent, or on the other hand, save lives of its patients, I don't think that's a hard call at all. But what I think we need to do is hopefully in a few months, we need to come back and revisit those questions and say, what is it about our legal systems? What is it about our markets? What is it about our culture that creates these sorts of problems? And and how do we fix them so that we don't have to sort of scramble in a moment of crisis, but we actually have a system that takes people's health and safety and freedom and autonomy into consideration at the ground level? Your work is mainly based on US copyright law, but the right to repair movement is gaining a lot of traction in the EU at the moment. What would you say are like the strengths of the American approach versus the strengths of the European approach and then the and the weaknesses? Like what are the things we should be learning from each other? I think it's too early to say because in, in the United States we we frankly haven't had much of a response. We've had an effort to use existing laws and existing rules that were designed for other purposes to try to rein in kind of the worst behaviors that we have seen, right? So there was the settlement against Apple recently for its throttling of iPhones. And it was a pretty big settlement in dollar value to normal people, right? $500 million, I think, which sounds like a lot until you think about (laughs) Apple's revenue numbers. There's the effort, of course, in states across the U.S. to enact right to repair legislation. But so far, although progress has been made, steady progress, I think, is continuing to be made, we haven't seen that effort uh, result in uh, in any new law yet. We've had sort of piecemeal exemptions under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act through the Copyright Office, but there has not been anything really approaching a sort of unified national response on these issues. And so I think one lesson that we in in the United States ought to learn is that this is an issue that affects national markets and products that are sold not just across this country, but across the globe. And we ought to take a more kind of proactive stance. I think there's a resistance here to imposing design obligations on companies in part because we don't have a great degree of trust in our government to get those sorts of engineering and design details right, but also because corporations have an outsized influence on our government. And I think it's it's challenging to get legislators on board with those sorts of of rules. So, so far, the, the lessons, I think, are flowing in, in one direction. We have a lot to learn from what Europe has done. I don't know what Europe can learn from what we've done so far, except from perhaps learning from our mistakes. Right. 
I mean, I guess with Brexit happening, the the question mark is for the UK, whether we're going to go towards approaching it like America currently are and turn our backs on the current successes of the European movement. I guess it's a, a, a worry for many UK people. Could frustrations with device obsolescence, this feeling of a lack of ownership that we frequently have towards our devices, eventually prompt a return to looking for devices that aren't smart, that maybe are dumb, you might call them, regaining popularity with with consumers again? I I certainly hope so. (laughs) This is definitely my approach to buying things as a consumer who spends a lot of time thinking about these issues. If you give me the choice between a product that connects to the internet and one that doesn't, I will take the one that doesn't connect to the internet every single time. If you give me a choice between a product that has physical components that are controlling its operation as opposed to one that relies on some chips and some software, give me the gears and springs every time. Now, for some products, it's just not an option anymore, either because of the sort of functionality that you're looking for, or because at least for now, the market has really moved in in the direction of smart connected devices. Try to go out and buy a new vehicle that is not deeply dependent on software code. And it's, it's really, uh, it's really impossible. I, I hope that there is, if not a, an outright backlash, I hope that the sort of shiny newness of smart devices and connected devices starts to wear off. I think that that is going to be an unsustainable trend moving forward. I think, you know, for a while, consumers were taken by the idea of, you know, a a smart water bottle or a smart hairbrush and would pay a little bit extra for these features. I think what people probably realize is that the features really aren't all that appealing and all that necessary and in fact cause lots of problems. So I I hope we start to see a reversing of that trend. But in some areas, vehicles, phones, communications devices, I I think we've got to figure out a way to, to restructure our legal systems or legal rules rather and and our and our markets in a way that realizes that some of these problems are are here for the long run. And do you think that we might even have like people hacking their devices to make them no longer smart? And would that be legal if they if they did do that? I think in some instances, consumers might want to have greater control over their devices so that they get the functionality that's crucial to them without having to suffer some of the consequences in terms of privacy and security that often come with connected devices. But lots of these smart devices are encumbered with digital rights management technology. Most jurisdictions around the world have some legal prohibitions on disabling and removing DRM. In the United States, the way that we've dealt with this is our copyright office has a process every three years where you can essentially petition them for a temporary exemption from these anti-circumvention rules. Advocates have had some success around repair, around device security in some categories of devices. So for vehicles, for mobile phones, but lots of electronic devices have not been the subject of these exemptions. And so somebody who goes in and tries to disable some of those features might 
actually face legal liability for doing that, even though it's a device that they bought and that they paid for and that, you know, lives in their home. I think that's a real problem. Consumers need to have some degree of, of control that the market isn't really providing. Part of the problem here is is a real lack of competition, a real degree of concentration in the markets for electronic goods, which means that a consumer who wants to go out and buy a product that doesn't have some of these downsides, often they don't have very many choices. And, and I think that's that's another piece of, of this puzzle that we have to that we have to give some thought. And you mentioned uh, DRMs there, which is digital rights management. Does there need to be restrictions on the use of DRMs, and and how do they reduce consumer ownership and control on a large scale? DRM is generally embodied in in software code and it's a a set of restrictions that limit the ways that you can use the ways that you can interact with a device that you own or some piece of content that you own so when your home printer refuses to let you use a discount ink cartridge right that's drm to blame in the old days of dvds when you tried to play a a a dvd that you bought in asia on a european dvd player it would say not supported right those are all software-based sorts of of restrictions on the, the products that we buy i think drm poses some real Problems. I don't know that the solution is necessarily to ban its use because there are some circumstances where DRM, I think, can be justified. The problem from my perspective is the use of law as a tool to sort of reinforce DRM. So it's not bad enough that the products have these controls on them, but then the law tells you that you're not allowed to remove those restrictions. Our goal at the Restart Project is to prolong the lifespan of electronics and to reduce e-waste. Is it realistic for smart electronics and tethered devices to be sustainable and to not contribute to e-waste due to shorter product lifespans? And if it is, what changes would be required to the law or legal precedent? Yeah, this is a really, really important Important question, and it gets back to our, our earlier conversation uh, about imposing some obligations on companies to support products for a reasonable period of time. There are a couple of ways in which we might be able to make these sorts of products more sustainable, right? I don't, I don't know, I don't know that they are ever going to be sustainable as a sort of absolute matter in the long run, but we can do a lot better than we're doing today. Part of that is about reducing and eliminating barriers to physical repair. As you know, as I'm sure the the listeners understand, a huge percentage of the electronic waste that is produced is a result of consumers choosing not to repair devices that could still function if given the right treatment. There are a whole bunch of reasons for that. And I think we have to we have to do a much better job of systematically identifying and addressing those reasons, right? Sometimes it's about the availability of parts. There are legal solutions to make parts more available. Sometimes it is about concerns over avoiding warranties or violating contractual provisions. There are legal solutions for those problems as well. Sometimes it's a question of the design 
of the product. And oftentimes it's a function of the sort of economic and kind of market-based strategy of technology companies. When Apple offers you a trade-in discount for buying a new device on top of the fact that they're already charging incredibly high prices for repair. That is, from one perspective, the perspective of the individual consumer, at least, that is beneficial, right? They say, oh, great, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, to get a discount. From the other perspective, though, it's, it's a almost sort of coercive behavior, right? It doesn't force the consumer's hand, but it it does more than nudge them towards replacing that device. So I think that's that's something that we have to think about. How do we create a set of incentives that encourage people to do the responsible thing and to, to sort of internalize some of those, those costs that they're imposing on the environment and that they're imposing on all of us? The other piece of this is less about the physical hardware and more about ongoing software support for devices. So it's expensive and it's inconvenient for companies to continue to support devices for years after they've been released. They would much rather you buy the new device and then they don't have to accommodate so many different hardware configurations. But I think it's it's really crucial that we change the incentives there as well. Listening to Aaron highlights the immediate need for legislation around technology copyright to be updated at a pace that can match the innovation. That was already the case, but perhaps the moment of emergency that we're living in now and the need for greater flexibility will help to bring a change. Do our consumer laws relating to physical ownership hold up in a time when our purchases are digital or when products only operate using software that can become out of date? Instead of expecting people to read 10,000 words of technical language and then negotiate the non-negotiable, perhaps it is time for better legal frameworks that protect people from companies who know exactly how to keep us needing to buy more. We are affected by the laws that are around us. Not just the big laws, but the small, boring ones that we pay very little attention to that have a quiet force to shape our lives and our economy. How often do we stop and think about those laws, whether they're fit for purpose, and what things they stop us from being able to do? In this moment when we have to, for our public health, our community health, our global health, our personal health, challenge and change the rules and laws around us. Seeing the unseen things that stop us from being able to take action for the common good becomes even more vital. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the restartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics. 
and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's new communications assistant, Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>